Is everybody doing turkeys? Yeah, we're doing turkeys. Yeah, turkey just isn't very good. My family, <laughs> my family renounced, you know, the tradition for tradition's sake in the traditional sort of food fair. We've been, we do barbecue just because mm. we just, I think years ago, we decided that tur- we didn't like the turkey stuff. <laughs> And so we just do a, a big old barbecue every year and it's, it's dope. And we still, there's still some good Thanksgiving stuff mixed in, but it's not just eating turkey and stuffing and such, because that's what you do. We, we rebelled. You know, I, as I think I've told you guys that we went, I went vegetarian like a little more than a year ago. And I think my, my mom was very excited about me. You know, she, she was like desperately hoping that I would say, we're going to do a tofurkey. Uh, like I, I like and I you know I don't understand exactly what that is but I understand that that's a thing <laughs> and when when I asked uh, my wife if we were doing a tofurkey she was like no 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 let's just do like a vegetarian dish we already know we like why would we risk doing something crazy that we don't even know are necessarily that excited about so so we're not uh, tofurkeying but hopefully Will Post tells us like on the Twitter what what like vegan people do for Thanksgiving did your whole family go vegetarian or just you? You know, it's funny. It was, it was originally, I think, so when I did it, Connie being a very supportive person decided to go pescatarian. Okay. So, so she went pescatarian and said, I'll just eat fish. But then obviously the last nine months, sorry, sorry for her. She's been trapped at the house with me and she's pretty much embraced full on uh, vegetarianism. And then I know she she watched this documentary that's on Netflix. I don't know if you guys have seen this about this guy in the, this like scuba diver on the Great Barrier Reef to, uh, befriending this octopus. I haven't seen it. Apparently <laughs> it's a thing. But I, I know, I know Nabil Hyatt watched it like two years ago. And after he watched it, he was like, yeah, I don't eat octopus anymore. Turns out <laughs> octopus are too smart. Not going to eat those. And uh, Connie came out of that and was like, yeah, I think, I think we're going to completely abandon all hopes of pescatarianism and, and join me in my ethical uh, journey. Having said, so my kids, yeah, they, they like bacon too much. What can I say? And like, I don't, you know, the funny thing about my vegetarian journey was like, I always, uh, for the last five years, I, I told people I was going to become vegetarian after my kids left for college. Cause it just seemed like it was going to be too hard to be vegetarian with my kids. Cause I don't know what they would eat if it wasn't chicken nuggets. Mm-hmm. And, but then, yeah, like a year ago, I don't know. I had some epiphany where I was like, Connie, I don't think I can wait any longer. And you know, we tried it, and I, you know, I, I always tell people, thank God for Beyond Burgers. It turned out it was super easy. Beyond Burgers <laughs> are actually very good. Yeah, yeah. Like for for some reason, I think just in like the last four or five years, like acceptance of vegetarianism as a lifestyle has come so far that like, yeah, you know, I thought I thought it would have been much harder. It turns out it's pretty easy. I think it's curious though, just where the trends are headed. I mean, this is kind of a longer tangent for our Pokemon podcast. I know. I might have, I might have, you know, just think, we might have cut it off at the Thanksgiving food dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's fine. None of this has to make the cut. But I was just thinking, like, I guess also, too, McDonald's has partnered with Beyond to do the McPlant stuff. But Beyond Burger is really only a handful of years old. I'm sure it's probably older than I know, but it really only started popping around recently and it's exploding. Like I imagine it'll just, there's no ceiling. Like it'll just keep exploding for the next 20, 30 years or so would be my prediction. 
Yeah, I guess very there's... fortunate that it's been easy, right? There's a lot of secular momentum around this. So. Yeah, I guess there's there's probably a, a, a ceiling for the demand at a certain point. So I guess it's not something that's going to expand indefinitely. But I guess sort of as a funnier point, I don't know if you, you saw, I, I can't remember who posted. I think it was something of Danny's, but they, we were just talking about bugs and crickets are really really good for you there's there's some like lit vegan literature that if we like started eating crickets which i guess wouldn't be vegan anymore but would get the cows and pigs sort of out of their mess not only would we stop global warming because they don't like it doesn't take any water to like produce them there's like just no footprint to raising crickets but, but they're just better for you and then in this thread some i think it was a thread of danny someone posted the like macros for crickets and it's insane it's like no fat no carbs 60 calories and all protein crickets crickets are super super good so true true story so i can actually bring this back to pokemon frighteningly enough at at, at San Francisco Worlds, I w- when I went over to the ferry building, I was like walking around the ferry building with my family and they there was a cricket vendor there. And we bought a bunch of bags of crickets and I brought them home and Liam had crickets for the first time and he found the crickets were delicious. Ooh. And when you pack a sandwich bag full of crickets to take to school for your lunch, kids freaking love it. <laughs> He was the most popular kid, and, and he, uh, when, he, that, when you pull out a pile of crickets to eat for your lunch, you are a star. <laughs> Badass kid. <laughs> so, so we we then proceeded to mail order crickets from this like San Francisco supplier, and we would never have been on the cricket train if it were not for Pokemon. Boom. <laughs> Do you still get the crickets? No, we haven't gotten the crickets in a while. He he he's he kind of burned himself out on crickets after a while. Welcome to the Trash Lanch. It's another uh, exciting episode of Everybody's Favorite Podcast. Attendance is as always 100%. I'm here with uh, Mike Boucher and Brett Pibus. It's week 17 and we have not missed a week. It's unbelievable. That's like four months of nonstop podcasting. It's uh, absolutely incredible. We are, we are still hanging in at 10 five-star reviews. This holiday is a perfect time to gift a review to your favorite podcasters. Just hop on iTunes and leave a review, and we will talk about that review on air and discuss it. Speaking of which, we should talk about Eric Brooks. It turns out everyone named Eric Brooks is great at Pokemon, right? Yeah, well, at least two of them. Eric Brooks, great, great tweeting. We appreciate the tweet, and we appreciate the review. And now we know your Twitter, so we can properly attribute you every time we mention you, like right now. <laughs> that tweet uh, is the most hilarious marketing scheme uh, on this podcast. Hopefully, we'll have another shout out for him in a couple weeks, and that he because he made the second phase of the Players Cup. That would be cool. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Absolutely. Do we know who made it to the second phase? Still no idea. Yeah, it's all it's all uh, top secret. December 5th and 6th, I think, is the next round. So we got to wait a couple of weeks before we get to find out the amazing things that happen. But as always, we'll be covering it here on the pod. Yeah. All right. Uh, it looks like – so who who put the next uh, item on the agenda here? This is all Brit. It's all Brit. Brit, you want to jump in? Yeah, no, this is just a thought I just had. I've had it a few times. I think I just have failed to bring it up. But it hit me again more recently because, you know, right now the 
fan ADP talk isn't as high as it was kind of months and months ago. So maybe it's just kind of fizzling, fizzling down. But I'm wondering just about, you know, ADP, whether it's fan worthy or not, it seems hard to refute that it its power, sort of its control of the metagame kind of dictates what's viable or not. And of course, that's always going to be the case with other decks. And I know now it's it's really so hard to tell without in-person events. I know, you know, Players' Cup and all the opens and things like that aren't nothing to scoff at, but they'll just never mask the regionals. Even even the like the Atlas Pog in August that had more people, you know, a thousand people or whatever, the regionals big. I just don't even think that. There's just something about the physical element to it that I think we'll always put it in a separate category. So it's hard to know how good ADP is. We don't know. But would it have been winning events right now? Probably. I mean, it, surely it would have won a few. Surely it would have been taking up lots of top eights, almost regardless of how many it wins. But so what I was thinking about is thinking about Gardevoir from Secret Wonders. I know, and Maiku will be able to help me on this. That, that's at least the the number one card in my mind in terms of it was the it was the best deck and it was too good, kind of, and it just truly, truly, truly controlled that metagame and then other other sort of really bdif powerhouses like maybe lux chomp there's so much creativity then still i wonder if it's really worth talking about but there is definitely i remember parts of the conversation people complained about a sp back in the day people thought it was too good and that you couldn't play evolutions anymore or without spiritum really anymore because the Luxray would could just always chase down your basics while Garchomp sn- sniped clay dolls and also were also your basics. So I, I'm not sure if any other there's any other deck worth talking about other than Gardevoir. But do you th- how do you think it would sort of hold up? Not in terms of sort of playing against each other, but do you think like would people now have been just complaining about banning Gardevoir for the entirety of that season, the 2008 season. Yeah, just a general question of, is ADP really that good or is, have players lived through a lot worse? Right, so like is ADP as dominant as some of, some of the other most dominant decks in their times? It's kind of the question. And I agree that Gardevoir is kind of like the, I don't know, it's like the highest bar. It's like, it's for sure the most egregious example in the history of like modern Pokemon as far as I know, some of some I was trying to think of other examples like Night March during the second half of I think it was 2016. Like that was a very very dominant deck. You know what's funny is it was kind of underplayed for how good it was. Like right. I think what's what's it about Night March is it should have dominated, but like not everyone was playing it. Like they like I feel like everyone plays ADP. You know, you could beat it though. The earlier incarnations of Night March were a lot easier to beat. It just kept getting better and better. And I think the really the really big tipping point was Puzzle of Time. But I remember, like, and it took a good player. But you know, and maybe perhaps I was this good player back in the day. But I remember like just never losing to Night March because I just like knew when to pick up my shamans and I knew how to take prizes with like one prize knockouts and things like. And then I would just watch my you know my neighbor has never sky return a Joltik and things like that. And, you know, sometimes it's not even a good play, but you have to do it so they don't beat you. Like you just have to be able to understand the game state and things like that. But yeah, Night March was certainly a powerful deck, but you know, it always thing, seemed one, to be checked. Like the, the thing that jumps out to me about, about Night March and Gardevoir that, that I think makes ADP weird is it ADP is in a weird place in the format because 
there's no hard counters because they're not printing fairy Pokemon. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> like if, if there was, if they had just printed a bunch of fairy Vs, we'd be like, well, if you want a hard counter or ADP, you can, but like you can't hard counter ADP. It's got a type mismatch. Mm -hmm. It's a weird thing. Yeah. Happened maybe with, was the, the Rayquaza e EX or GX that came out relatively recently. It was like in a similar boat where it was just like, it was weak to fairy, but there were just weren't fairy poke. Well, no, it couldn't have been that one because Gardevoir was out then. I don't know what I'm thinking of. Yeah. But there I mean, was like Pikaram a good was that... kind of like that because they're, they, yeah. you know, like the fighting Pokemon were in a bad place, but like, you know, it's yeah, just that's... weird. Like there's not even the prospect of a hard counter being printed, you know? Yeah, because like what we've seen, even just the last couple sets, and you know this happened has happened a, a, a bunch of times in Pokemon. It's like Dragapult was a very good deck. The next set they print Eternatus. Eternatus is a very good deck. The next set they print Colossal. So they're like being very you know clear with their printing counter cards, and that's not not even possible now. But anyway, kind of. I guess here's here's some questions. I think you can help me with Mikey. So yeah. how like how did how, how often did the Gardevoir counter decks actually beat Gardevoir? Because the thing with ADP is that we, we've talked a lot about, about the various ways you can counter it. And, but the fact of the matter is those counters are never surefire ways. They can always play crushing hammers of their own. They can always mawile you. You know, a lot of the game is just, like we've said, you just have to limit your two prizers. In some games, that's just an imp impossible based on how you open and based on what your opponent does. And so ADP really can beat beats its counter decks probably about 50% of the time. And that's just how good it is, how well it runs, things like that. And so, yeah, that's just my question. Like how consistently did Gardevoir beat? Because there was a lot of counter decks. I don't know how many of them really count as hard, hard counters or how many of them sort of were like softer counters. Cause I know I would think that only really like the Bannet decks, those are yeah. the really, really hard counter ones. I would, but I'm not sure if Empoleon technically would count. Well, and that's the thing, like I'm thinking back to that year, like I don't think any deck, whether it was a hard counter or a soft counter had a better than 50-50 matchup against Gardevoir. Like I think Empoleon versus Gardevoir was like pretty much 50-50. Even the Bennett Blissey, I'm not even sure that was favored. Like I, like I had that deck at nationals, and I opted not to play it because I was like, Gardevoir is just like you. You weren't beating Gardevoir seventy percent of the time. No deck was beating Gardevoir seventy percent of the time. So like, I don't know. At worst, maybe the Bennett Blissey deck went like sixty forty or fifty five forty five against it. But I mean, it was three of the top four at national. The other thing that's really hard hard to tell is like, yes, we have all of these tournaments now. And even if it was physical, we would have had a lot more tournaments in the format. Back then it was, you know, Gardevoir was, during the city championships, it was still not played very much and the optimal lists weren't really there. Like it was played, I played it with Furret, which was like a search Pokemon and whatnot. So cities, which had the most events earlier in the year, it wasn't that big of a deck then. But then when states, there's only like one or two weekends of states and one weekend of regionals and then U.S. nationals and world. So you only had a couple of chances um, for the deck to win. And it was the best deck during states and regionals and nationals world format. But it's really hard to say, like, because the metagame just has a lot less opportunities to develop. So maybe things could have gotten better and more refined to beat. Gardevoir and have better matchups but in that limited time span it didn't happen like Gardevoir was I mean yeah it, it three out of four of top four at nationals I forget if it was three out of four or just two out of four at worlds 
Or it must have been three out of four, or two out of four, because Jimmy O'Brien, I think, top forward. And then yeah, the- Jimmy, Gino, Jason, and Khan, yeah. the Blissey player. Right, so two out of four. And, like, obviously, Jimmy lost. Well, actually, I don't know if Jimmy lost to... Jimmy lost to Khan because Jason played Gino in top four. So, yeah, it would have been interesting to see, like, Empoleon versus Gardevoir in the finals. Yeah, uh, maybe have to do some digging on PTCG archive. Maybe the I can find the all the results from regionals that year because there wouldn't have been so there would have only been like five of them or so. It shouldn't yeah. be all that difficult to track down. Yeah. Who won? Maybe I can even think of who won some of those. I remember too, maybe, I don't know if your area would have been a lot different, but at least according to the players who played then from where I'm from, they told, they were, I remember them sort of telling it to me as like, it took a while for people to really notice that Gardevoir was the star. At first people thought like Gallade was the bustedness, like that, mm-hmm. you know, you do Sonic Blade, oh, you know, it kills everything, flip your prizes, too good. But yeah, the, the, like the deck at States or something, and again, this might've just been a local metagame kind of thing, that it, it was around then that people switched to Gardevoir and sort of they beat these Gallade heavier decks, but you know, Maybe that was just here. I just—it's always interesting how it, we have broken cards, but it might take us a, an event or two to place them in the right order. Yeah. Well, and even you go further than that. I don't remember too many specific games, but I do remember in general there was the regional that I played in. I think I lost in top eight, but I remember playing—you know—a handful of Gardevoir mirrors throughout the day, and just remember people would like not psychic lock as much as they should be, right? Like that was the, that was literally the whole game plan of the mirror. Psychic lock every single turn forever. And that's why you even saw techs come in later in the year, like Jirachi X, because you could psychic lock a turn earlier than your opponent could with that. And so it was just like, even, even just playing the deck, people didn't really understand how impactful just psychic lock every single turn was. So I'm mm-hmm. sure that impacted win rates. Another point, too, that I'm thinking against, uh, at least uh, this conversation is all, I think, a month or two late, but we, we, you know, we keep the ban ADP is targeting one card, but, you know, that's only one deck. ADP only exists in ADPZ, whereas, you know, I was thinking with Mewtwo, like Mewtwo is, was in Mewtwo EX when it got printed and Next Destinies was in a similar position in that it changed the way decks had to be built, like s- several archetypes from that city's formats just couldn't compete anymore they either if they did they were tier two or tier three and only because they played their own Mewtwo right. or they or or they were these the, the heavier Mewtwo versions that pop backed up and that kind of dictates creative space and the metagame but is a singular card like it's I think Mewtwo strikes me as just thinking about it now strikes me as being a whole lot worse than ADP is, at least from the way I'm seeing it. And even too, even into the next format where you get Dark Explorers with Dark X, which at least I think on the surface should have been the counter card. Psychic. But then at Worlds, it's just Mewtwo. Mewtwo is the star all along still. It's three out of four top top deck, or three out of the four top four decks are Mewtwo Darkrai, or you know, Igor had a slight variation of it, and it's just still just kind of the same thing. Whereas even through a counter card, it was that good. So I think definitely any kind of, but definitely I think softens my my view on ADP a little bit, I think, but. I was going to ask you guys if Darkrai was like 
thought of in the same way. Like it was a little bit, it was a little before my time, but I recognize like Israel did his big run and essentially it was like just the same deck weekend after weekend after weekend, but same player weekend after weekend after weekend. And I recognize like it appears on, you know, in the finals of worlds, like multiple years in a row ish. Right. Or around that, I guess, Virgin mirror at the end, but like dark. Yeah. It was always very, it was always very good, but I don't feel like dark ride decks ever had the same connotation because there was just always other good decks that I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, ne- I never got the same feeling. Well, you had Terrakion, which I think was in, on its own good enough. You could just make random nonsense with Terrakion, and it could be it could beat Darkrai sometimes. So I think that was definitely a big factor. A lot like you could play it with eels. You could play it in your own Darkrai. You could play it in a big basics deck. You could play it in CMT. So it could really it it was just really really flexible. So I think that was always part of it. But trying to think about more towards like later after that world, after Darkrai had been around anymore, if it really... No, and I don't think so. I think just what Mikey said, there were really just too many other decks. And I remember, or not Igor, but Israel's wins with Darkrai were somewhat of an anomaly, I think. Like, he just played really well and ran really well those tournaments. Because Darkrai sort of, the whole time, just kind of was one of those decks where you took 50-50s against the board you didn't really have any good matchups, but you didn't have any bad matchups either, other than maybe some random stuff. And like, and you know, some of them are maybe even worse. You had lots of 45, 55s, but when you ran well and played well, you could beat them. And I, I was just never a dark ride player because I, I guess just couldn't play it well enough. I was never confident in my Blastoise matchup and things like that. But Israel, and I don't think your VG matchup was all that great either because their ability really, the grass ability really affects your, your, your math because you didn't get lasers anymore, but he pulled it off, you know, and which is, again, is just really, really good when you play it well. And the same with Jason, Jason played the deck, played at least versions of it, I think exclusively for about a year. And he'd do the same thing with Seismitoad and just, just so much options. But I think when you stick to one thing and just learn it, which may segue us into another point, yeah let me just let me just mention real quick i think if i was going to compare like dark ride decks to any decks in the current format it'd be like picaram i feel like they play very similar they're kind of like these mid-rangey toolboxy like they're not toolbox decks in this in like the you know countered box like trying to hit weakness but they're just like and they're just like mid-range with like a lot of different options throughout a game and like a lot of it's not even like options on any given turn which there are but it's almost like options in game plans, like more meta game plans. Like it, in the current format, like Picaram really needs to decide relatively early, am I gonna, what GX attack am I gonna use? Am I gonna use Tag Bolt? Am I gonna use the Raichu attack? Does it not matter really? Am I gonna use Tag Bolt for not the boosted effect? And I feel like you need to kind of, based on that decision, you have a lot of like different ways to play out a game. And I feel like Darkrai was kind of similar in the sense that you know, with, with the 30 snipe, especially, you know, you had to like kind of map out your prizes relatively early in the game and your games could look very different if you, based on the early game decision that you make. So I feel like that's kind of similar. But anyway, Britt, unless you guys have more to say about that, Britt was going to segue. Oh, no, I, well, other than a segue, I think just to add on to what Mikey said, this adds to another thing I was thinking about recently, but a lot of times when I'm 
you know, thinking about what makes a deck good. Why, why is this deck better than this deck or something like that? It's just kind of, uh, there's just some really simple questions, I think. And it's just, and the Picarum example and Darkrai are a really good example. And that both, obviously your strategy isn't quite simple, but you just really only need energies to focus. And I know you could, you know, you could boil that down as like, well, every deck needs energies, <laughs> but, but like you just need to attach and your because your attack gets you more energy and things like that. And so it's just very basic and kind of, you know, Picarum could play full games without, really needing to do other things. Whereas the ADP is like, okay, I need my water energy. I need to GX this turn. I need, I need a boss this turn too. There's just a lot of, a lot of other moving parts. And I think that's, that's true of uh, really, really good decks are just simple. They need enter, they need to attach and attack. And if that's all they can do, then they they'll be in the game supporter or not. Whereas other decks are, you know, whether they're explicitly combo heavy or not, there's always, you know, a sequencing combos that are going on. And I think that's just a really good way to think about things. And I, it just occurred to me recently, just in terms of like, why is Picarom still doing so well? What makes it better, you know, on a fundamental level, like on your, your basic level, not even talking about other things, like why is it doing this? And that was just kind of the, the conclusion I came to is like, it's simpler. And, you know, all that to say that often the best decks really are just painfully simple like that. You just psychic lock every turn you just you know you, you alter creation and then you boss two times things like that <laughs> quaking punch quaking punch yeah. i will but, say about you know it's interesting i watched israel play uh, uh dark at an expanded tournament i want to say like a year and a half ago and and i felt like I, I learned a lot like it was interesting i mean as a terrible player like there were all these situations i think where like i saw him have a dark patch in hand and i would have been like like just play the dark patch thin out your deck and get an energy onto like a pokemon and and he would just like play in and keep shuffling it back in and finally like he got to the end of the game and he had like you know 10 cards left in deck and four of them were dark patches <laughs> <laughs> and you know he was he was 100 okay with playing this like kind of slow methodical game where he was spreading damage with dark rye and like setting up knockouts and then you know he knew at any point he could just, you know, get end low and still draw the dark patches he needed to power up uh, Pokemon and win the game. And and I mean, skill skillful. I mean, these these mid range decks are decks that like cater, I think, to better players. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I I didn't I haven't really thought about it like this until now. But ADPZ is really a combo deck. Like it's <laughs> like much more so than other decks in the format. So that's. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> I, you know, I, I've I've come to, I've realized uh, recently that like I think Pokemon, you know, you know, people. There's this archetype that pervades like all TCGs where they say, you know, there's aggro and there's mill and there's control and there's you know mid range, yeah, you know, and then there's like and then they have this idea of combo as like another thing in most TCGs and Pokemon. Like every deck's a combo deck. Yeah, that's true. Because you draw so many cards, and you can like go, th you can dig so hard in your deck relative to other TCGs. Yeah. I mean, like Mega Ray, you're like, okay, we're gonna discard this, we're gonna Mega Turbo, we're gonna get the Spirit Link, we're gonna evolve, we're gonna like attach double energy. But like, I think we think of it as an aggro deck, mm -hmm. but I think other TCGs would look at that and they'd be like, oh my god, you have to pull off like an eight card combo to like hit turn one for one eighty. That's insane. You're like, well, oh, no, it's just another day at the park for the Pokemon <laughs> TCG. 
So I remember having a conversation with Tyler Minamora about Night March, kind of in that couple months span where it was undisputedly the best deck from like, I don't know, maybe like April or May until Worlds that year in 2016. And he was like, yeah, Night March is so good because it's the best aggro deck in the format and it's the best control deck in the format, right? Because you're hitting for so much damage so quickly, but in that format, you also had Hex Maniac and VS Seeker. And so you could like switch to a game plan where you're just like, all right, I'm hitting you for a ton of damage, but I'm also like preventing you from doing a lot of stuff. So it was, you know, both the best of both worlds. And in it, when you think of decks kind of like how Brent just uh, broke it down, like a lot of other TCGs do, it's a little bit, it's, Pokemon is so weird in the, in that sense. You, you don't really have those, but if you do think about it like that, Night March was, it was the best aggro and it was the best control. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, like, like, you know, what was that regionals where Azul took like six prizes with Blastoise in one turn? Like, you know, Blastoise, obviously like combo deck, but you know, we expect it to pop off turn one. Like it's not <laughs> doing its thing if it doesn't completely pop off turn one. It's funny how Pokemon just has this idea of like on any given turn, you can just go completely bananas. And if your deck doesn't have those characteristics, it's probably not a good deck. Yeah. <laughs> if your deck is fair, it's probably not good. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like, well, yeah, when you play expanded, you know, like, you have to ask this yourself, this, is my deck too fair? It might be good, but if it's too fair, you're, you're probably not playing the right deck for the tournament. Yeah. That's one of my favorite quotes from a fighting game streamer. He said, I guess he's probably the best player, too, but this was on his stream. He says, if you have to, if you, if you have to outplay your opponent multiple times in one game, then your character, you know, your character sucks. Like, it's, <laughs> it's just like that, like, you just don't make it harder for yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. All right, you want you want to talk about being a being a one deck uh, player for a second, Brit? We had the segue. Oh story. yeah, I mean, I, I think it goes well. I guess Jason is a really good example. He's kind of only played Darkrai and the only played Seismitoad. Just kind of for the hundred percent of their legality. I, I think he bounced around a little bit more than Darkrai because I know I think he would play various things but his core deck was always just like vanilla dark rye and he would go on to win worlds with it that year but then i know for a fact when seismitoad was legal he only played seismitoad i mean you know the cards that he would he would play with it would vary but i don't believe he ever played a deck list without four seismitoad and he's he's obviously our best example right that's i know we dispute it here and there but the best player of all time, at least in terms of just talking sheer accomplishments. We don't have to get into the semantics of what counts as what or anything like that, but he's won worlds three times and he's, he's just, he would only stick to one thing. And I was thinking about it more. This was, this helps to talk, use it in Pokemon, but thinking about it more like with Hearthstone, that's quite a bit more common in there. People are just kind of specialists. People, you know, it gets different when you have to play tournaments because you have to then play a different class. But there's plenty of people who are just like, oh, yeah, I only play Priest. I only play Warrior. And they, they're they good. And I know Hearthstone is, is a differently designed game in that it might be hard, but you can always have some level of success, I think, playing whatever class. Like, I think, for the, generally speaking, you can get to Legend with any class at any point in time, given enough time and effort and... I'm sure there's one or two formats here and there where just like, no, no, like Shaman, you could not win with. But that's just not true with Pokemon. Pokemon, as we say many times, this isn't designed with those sorts of things in mind. It's designed for this everyone gets a turn mentality where this month, Psychic Pokemon are good and next month, 
dark Pokemon are good. And that's just kind of how it goes. But yeah, I think now, with at least with the format we have now, is at least probably about four or five very good decks. And for the most part, they all have pretty good match. Like the matchups are all relatively even. And so I, I haven't found success yet. In fact, I went 0-2 at um, Hegster's on Monday. I played Scorch and didn't play a Welder either game. But yeah, I was just sort of thinking to myself, like, do I just suck? Is this a me problem? Like, what's, what's going on here? How do I, like, I just feel like I should have done okay at an open yet, and I haven't. And so this is my next, I think, sort of approach outside of playing my Orbeetle deck on the side. I really want to just try to commit to like one archetype because I think it's just interesting as I've done this in Hearthstone, like it's just kind of really cool to notice how good you get with the deck and how sort of almost seamless it is. Like I didn't set out to become good with this deck. It's just something that came naturally because of the habits of playing and practicing and focusing, you know, sort of more, more down that line. And my, you know, I just sort of posing that out there is that, is that something you can do in Pokemon compared to Hearthstone? we kind of see it i know like players like jake gerhardt kevin clemente maybe as well no one else really comes to mind as sort of being a purist of their their archetype for the moment and i i'm always really indecisive i really always struggle with any kind of choice so i know i'll i'll regret committing to something but i just want to you know that's just kind of how i want to want to progress from here i think but i don't know which one i would choose so, so I have lots of thoughts. So first of all, it feels like of the decks in the format, Lucario, like Luke Metalization, LMZ, whatever it's being called now, that seems to have the biggest diehard following. I think they're, you know, you mentioned one, Jake Gearhart. There's another guy, Joshua Sutherland. And I feel like there's a couple other like die, ride or die LMZ players. And it is funny how there does seem to be like, decks like that as well that attract that type of player center scorch seems to be like another contender there's a I feel like cash has played a lot of center scorch i see alex shamansky post mostly about center scorch so i don't know if those, either of the those decks are ones that you want that you want to pick but they seem to attract have attracted that type of player in this format i i kind of have this I don't know, it was a couple of years ago, probably, I think it was the 20, either 2016 or 2017 season. I kind of wrestled with this same question because the season prior, I did relatively well. I did okay, you know, qualified for Worlds and whatnot, but I switched decks like all the time. And I was like, do I want to do this? Because I had seen most locally to me, with Jimmy O'Brien and Frank Diaz, you know, are some of the better players to play the game. And they very much adopt the style of pick a deck and run with it as well. Like Frank also loved Darkrai. He played it very different. It's actually kind of funny thinking about Sosa versus Frank because they were both playing dark decks pretty much consistently around the same time, but their builds were very different and they had very different philosophies on how to play. Sosa, I think very much valued options and a slow methodical game plan. And Frank was like, I want to be able to cart, be able to play any single card in my deck every single turn. Like he wants every card to be useful whenever he plays it and he wants to play more aggressively. But anyway, and Jimmy has been known for like Flareon, Vespaquin decks. He kind of like ran with those for a long time. So I had really admired their success the year prior. And I, you know, tried to adopt that at least partially. So I remember whatever season that was, I played Toad Bats for every expanded event 
that I went to for a whole year just because, you know, I wanted to try it. And, and, and I did have that effect. Like, not only do you play better in game, but you think about the deck and how it's constructed, I think at a much deeper level. And you realize that, you know, some of these cards that you took for granted, you're like, well, these could be different. You know, they, they're serving this function and they're serving this deeper function that I didn't realize. And maybe I could change it to something else that can, you know, hit that deeper function, whatever you're trying to do with that card spot. So that is like a huge benefit. Personally, I found it also a little boring too, because you're kind of playing the same thing all the time. And so I think that's ultimately why I haven't uh, stuck with it long term, is that I want to win, but I also want to have fun. And like, I think I have the most fun when I'm thinking about a lot of different decks at any given time. So, you know, what's okay. funny, we, when, when we did that experiment, we kind of had the opposite logic in that, like, so, so our, 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 we've kind of come and gone down that path, I think at different times here in the Halliburton household. And I remember, I mean, sa sadly, it was supposed to be this past year was supposed to be that time for us. <laughs> <laughs> we, so we, we went to, we went to Atlantic city uh, regionals and we like, agonized over our deck choice i mean just agonized we were just we were absolutely dying and and it was it was tough because you know we had always as i think you guys know we'd always been really really close with the inguzmans and the hyatts and the hyatts weren't there and alejandro had just aged up to masters and decided to take a year off and like as a result we like didn't get we we didn't have as much input as we normally have into our process and, and the result was like, we were just dying trying to figure out what deck we were supposed to play. And Walker had kind of hung up his spurs. So it was like just Liam and I trying to kind of figure stuff out. And it was really, really tough. And we settled on Pidgeotto Control and like, like hours before the tournament. And it went really well for us. And, it, and no surprise, like when we settled on Pidgeotto Control, we were really happy because like we always want to play control decks and we're, we, we troll like that. And like afterwards, I said to Liam, we should just play this deck until it's bad. Because, like, Pidgeotto Control is a very good deck. You know, as long as it's viable, we should play it because, like, we like this kind of deck and we could, we could like, I, I think as opposed to being bored, we were hoping to spare ourselves the agony of this, like, the Friday night meltdown, <laughs> right? And, and in that way, it was, like, really good. Like, we took it to, you know, what, like, one more regional and then like it was a wave of expanded tournaments and we didn't get to play it but we played it like a lot of locals and had a lot of success at the locals and everyone hated us because like who brings pidgeotto to locals but <laughs> you're you know he's, he's teeing that up against seniors and locals it was a horrible thing but but it was like there's no question it was really good in that like you you understand what that 59th and 60th card really really do when you play the same deck for a long period of time without playing like any other deck, you know? Yeah. And, <laughs> and in that respect, it's really nice. I mean, I know I've talked before in the pod, how, you know, the first year that we played, Liam just played TDK. It was the only deck we played. And like, we really knew how to like look at a meta game and change the 60th card. You know, we put in for, for the world championship, we put in a Palkia, because we thought uh, a Blastoise was going to be big. And lo and behold, we bumped into two Blastoises and like six Odom oh. <laughs> in two seconds, right? Yeah, like there's just nothing they can do 
if you attacked uh, the Palkia in that deck. And it was like, you know, it was picking up free wins because we teched the 60th card for that matchup. And it was really nice. Could it be boring? Yeah, you know, it, you have to you have to find the joy in like agonizing over that 60th card, right? Yeah, that's true. I like it. Yeah, I was just gonna say there's definitely I think a, a calm and ease to it. <laughs> just like, you know, especially for someone like like me, very anxious, second guessing my deck choice of every event, no matter yeah, what. Yeah, that's what we were Down trying to do. Down to the last second as opposed to just like I I'm a Luke Metal player. Today I will play Luke Metal and I hope it will go well. You know, like <laughs> that's just sort of the end of the conversation i was thinking more too i wonder i wonder if i have just kind of a natural aversion to it because i've just i've just i've been on i've metagamed the the one trick player too many times i've you know just a small i've been a part of smaller metagames in my history of the game and i just my cities were never big enough where I could just take a loss i had to i had to get creative with and play a little clunky deck lists here and there and I wonder just, especially like on a local level, maybe it has less merits to do it. You know, you need to win your, your league cups pretty quickly. You don't want to just commit to one tech there maybe. So you don't get metagame because they're so small, but at a, at a big level, I definitely think there's some really good appeals to it. I think this is actually a really good time to do that kind of thing if you want to, because there's no question like the four or five top decks can win any given week, you know? Like the metagame is not, so like like changing so rapidly that you know like something something is better this week than it was last week like Santa Scorch, it's kind of in the same place it was last week i guess i just only have really two more decks to try <laughs> i haven't so i've played since, since thinking about this i played lucario mount metal did bad i played eternatus did bad i played sem scorch did bad so i've got i've got adp and Pika left to to muse muse about committing to we'll we'll see how it goes i've never played adp for like a real tournament before either i only played it for the keys just doesn't doesn't excite me i don't think i don't think i'd ever really want to commit to that one no matter what the other (laughs) decks are more fun enjoyable i think i i think if i was going to commit and i have thought about it actually a little bit in the last week or two but i think i'd probably pick pikaram it's fairly enjoyable to play for some of the reasons I outlined before like it's not like it's it's simple but it's not linear like you have options different games are different it's pretty consistent you can play crushing hammers if you want but you don't have to I really I, I also played in the Hexter yesterday and I played Pika I really enjoyed playing it for the first two rounds and did well the first two rounds then round three I played a mirror Pika round that went three for three on crushing hammers on turn two um, so then must I did be nice must be yeah. nice like I, I chose to go second I bolt in get two energy and then all my energy get discarded the following turn <laughs> and then I didn't have fun that round but I think Pikaram is pretty is, is really solid deck I, I think, think I think peak in my mind that the, the decks that I could see you guys uh playing are Pikaram and Baby Blanche see I, I I need to try Baby Blanche too I was just thinking historically it's never the main, when I, whenever I've had a deck that I do play a lot, and I actually think like Mikey, I think I only played Toad Bats and Expanded for like a really long time. Just, I think I just decided that year I, I didn't care about Expanded. Toad Bats was just I, good. I only needed 300 points, you know, it was one of those years, and I think I only had to play like two events, and it, I did well with Crobat. Yeah, I love that deck. I played that deck in 
kind of the whole time it was legal and standard too. But yeah, never Night March, always like something else. I've never been like a battle compressor player either. So the, the main deck I would say I was a player of was Blastoise. I, I would say, I always thought I was like a top three Blastoise player. And I always thought my list was was better than others. Like I played that deck so, so much. And now that, that's like, wasn't quite, I was never just a main meta just because of Tropical Beach, but I, I'm sure it actually would have been had they been readily available. So I, you know, I was thinking about that. I was just like, what does something like that? Like lots of energies, discards them, maybe send a scorch, attaching energies from hand. I tried to give it a go and, you know, a lot of variants and best of one still. So all these did bad or some O2 drops with some, some unfortunate games, but you see the same players topping every week. You know, I was just thinking to myself, like, Danny does well every week. Lee, uh, Lee does well every week. Like, why not? What was the difference here? So clearly some amount of play still involved that I'll need to make up for. But hopefully we'll figure something out here. Starting to get a little frustrated with it. I think you make a good point, though, about how, like, it's it's hard. You know, I we I don't know if Liam and I were fooling ourselves thinking that, like, Pidgeotto Control was a little different, although I think it was a little different. Like, countering Pidgeotto Control, it's not obvious what you're supposed to do to counter it. It's a horrible deck. But, but like, because you're not going to locals, it's a little easier, I think, to pick a deck and say, I'm just going to lock into playing this. Because, like, if you if you said, hey, I'm just going to play Senescorch, there's nothing else on Earth I will play, but we were still going to 10-person League Cups, like, you just get hard countered, right? Mm-hmm. And and they, they'd kind of chase you off it, and that would be that. But, you know, I mean, when you're doing Hexter, like, no one cares. If you want to lock into a deck, like, nobody's going to start like teching for that deck any more than they were teching for it already. There's enough players that every tournament is like, quote, like a big tournament. Yeah. And like pretty spread out metagame. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're, you're not, you're not changing the metagame by committing to playing X, Y, or Z. So it's like a, it's a great time to really lock in on a deck. But I like, I like how your reaction to, yeah, I should lock in on a deck was, okay, all I have to do is play these different decks at a couple more tournaments. And I'll <laughs> Well, I have to try them. I have to try them in a real tournament to get the feel. That's we're conducting research. I don't have enough experience to commit. Like I've never played Senescorch, so I, I wouldn't. I don't think I would be making a proper decision if I just said no. Senescorch was zero. Right. Well, I, and I like I like how you you say I played two games with Senescorch. I didn't draw a welder either game. Senescorch is a bad deck. I'm not gonna play that anymore. <laughs> That's that's more or less in 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 so many words. That's my opinion of welder decks. To be sure, like can't find you know. welder. This this deck's terrible. Yeah, and like I mean, with the Mewtwo decks, you just dig really aggressively for the welders, and it's just the same story. It's really really good when you hit them, particularly two turns in a row. Um, and then it's a whole lot of nothing otherwise. Whereas at least Senescorch has Volcanion if you don't welder right away. You have a few turns before you need to chain your welders. All right, let's let's talk about let's talk about. Should we talk about commentating, guys? Sure. How was commentating? So I'll tell you. I'll tell you what really upset me this weekend was I I said on the last pod that I was going to listen to you guys commentate, and then I realized after the fact that I forgot, and I tried to go, and they didn't save it uh, as like a Twitch stream, so I couldn't view it later. Dude, they got to save those. I would. They probably can save those, but I have noticed 
lots of, you know, lots of streamers now don't save their VODs anymore because of the whole music Twitch thing that happened. So I don't mm-hmm. know if that had anything to do with it or if they just forgot to hit record. But I've actually, that, that actually reminds me, I was thinking about this. I've played against a bunch of people that I know are streaming. You know, I played against Azul, I played against Kevin Clemente, I played against Pedro, either on ladder or sometimes in a tournament. And I know they're streaming at that time. And I want to go back and watch the game from their side to like, you know, to see if, to see if I made the right decisions at given moment. Like, did I make the right read? What was their opinion on different stuff? And that's really unfortunate that I can't do that now. Yeah. So how was commentating guys? Right. Back to commentating. Um, Commentating. Yeah, it was good. We were just talking about welder. Welder decks did quite good at this event. Baby Blonde won the event, and we watched Lee got top four with Mewtwo Welder. Britt and I casted him at least one time, maybe two times. So we saw a lot of Welder decks during the during the tournament, actually. It was pretty fun. I think Britt and I did three matches, four matches. I forget exactly. And yeah, the, the Baby Blonde, the senior Vinny from Brazil took the, took the event down. Were, were there were there tons and tons of commenters in the chat? Did people show love for the pod? Because that's really all I care about. No. Oh, it was a pretty slow chat. Man. <laughs> people got to jump on that stuff. It was fun. I thought it was a good experience. It was fun. I thought it went well. Like I said, I don't think I've done it for a really long time. And I thought we were a decent team. I thought we were better than the other casters for sure. I don't know if you listen oh, for to sure that. for sure i did a little bit not but, not, uh, yeah, not uh, uh, they know more better than better than playing more time consuming more stressful less stressful it's less stressful honestly yeah. it was better than playing for me because i just showed up and casted and left you know and then came back to cast whereas with pokemon it's just like 15 more minutes till my next round or just sometimes you get lucky and you almost go to time and you just go straight into your next round but otherwise you just kind of like should i play a game do i have time to play a ladder game i don't have time to play a ladder game what should i do and i just don't like that time like i've said before it just kind of makes me anxious having to wait there so i liked i liked this this was kind of the ideal the ideal tournament where you just you play your game you go up to your hotel room you get a text message you go back down you play your game you rinse and repeat so so did you guys feel like you get got any like i know i i pasted a bunch of results as always courtesy of pokestats and cash and stuff like that Uh, did like playing in tournaments this week commentating looking at this stuff give you guys any keen insight into the meta and the universe and what people should be thinking about this week no, it seems more of the same. It seems like Colossal is not good. I think it would have done okay by now. But I mean, I think that was our impression is that it wasn't going to be any good. It And people thought that maybe it's sheer existence would scare off Pika. It doesn't. I'm still working on Orbital. This newest list I have is pretty good. It's so I think the best version I've, I've had yet. But yeah, I, I just don't think this set is really all that impactful. So I'm afraid we might be stuck with another, I guess till next year, really more of the same. And again, like there's four or five good decks and their matchups really are pretty close interaction, maybe dependent, but a lot of fairly close matchups. So it could be worse. I think I'm having fun to, to, to be sure. 
even if this if it's just ADP, Lucario, Senescorch, and Picaram with maybe a little smack of Blacephalon and Eternatus. Yeah, I agree. Have you gone down the Picaram route with the Orbital yet? Yeah, well, I don't know if I've ever played one with Pikachu, but I've tried a couple different versions of like Lightning Orbeetle with like Raichu, one with lots of Vicavolts and like hammers and stuff. And I don't know what it's for. Like you're just a worse, P- the you're a Pika, you're just a bad Pikaram deck with the other version. The um, the Vicavolt version is okay, but it has the same sort of uh, ceiling that the regular. Vicavolt decks have it just often isn't enough on its own and again not a whole lot of real not a lot of inherent synergy between the two like yeah you do more damage but kind of awkwardly and it it doesn't like do magic numbers for you you aren't suddenly like immediately getting the knockouts you weren't weren't getting otherwise it's just kind of convenient over time so the version I've had the most success with before today was just the most vanilla version you have and then today i'm I stuck in crushing hammers but yeah it's just kind of nothing but snorlax and orbeetle yeah i pretty much agree i was thinking about this today the set really hasn't done that much the one thing that i can't really put my finger on is adp feels it's still like you know maybe the best deck maybe top three but it just feels a little worse than it did before and i don't know if that's true i don't know if it's that's the correct feeling and i don't know where it comes from it just feels like maybe it's just every other deck is just a little bit better now and so it feels a little bit worse but i don't know that that's that's my only addition whimsicott is like a solid tier two tier three deck it's the only new deck that i think is viable at all and it's not it's not as good as like the top four-ish decks but it can beat any of them if it draws decently but that's that's the only like other it's the only real new deck i feel like that has come out of this set that's any good Oh, on a vaguely related note, in, in terms of Channel Fireball endorsements, one thing that I uh, really enjoyed this week is uh, Xander Perro just published this article, his article on Senescorch, and and he included like puzzles to uh, solve. Do you guys remember that like Pokey Puzzles website that somebody tried to start like a year ago? Do you, any idea whatever happened to that? I don't know. They only had like you know a couple, maybe like three or four, something like that. Yes, I, that's I, I'm I'm supposed to sit down and read Channel Fireball with my son tonight because I, I was like, well, I want to do this puzzle thing with him. And I showed it to him for a second. He was like really excited to sit down and do it. And it made me sad that that Pokey Puzzles thing seems to have never worked out because I think people like that idea of like there are correct plays give us problems. Yeah. The Hearthstone ones are always really awesome. They they occasionally, there was a set a couple of years ago where that was kind of the single player content was like, ridiculous puzzles and they were all a lot of fun they i don't i don't think i got very many of the really hard ones but i would try yeah that was fun so and i and i think like people could make puzzles that are like xander so xander's isn't a puzzle in the sense that like a lot of the other puzzles that i think were coming out by the guy that made that thing were can you win this turn that type of thing or can you accomplish this very specific goal xander's is a little more open-ended he's like what is the best sequencing or best play this turn can you map it out essentially 
I feel like that is super useful given a interesting starting hand, which is the one that he presented with. Like what's the optimal order of things? Yeah, I do think that's pretty cool. And even if just articles would, you know, work those in, I think that would be a really nice like norm to set. Yeah. Yeah. And and I like how they did it on the channel fireball thing where they like hid the answer, like it's collapsed. Mm -hmm. So, so you will not see the spoiler until uh, they're ready to reveal the answer. So, uh, nicely, nicely done by the uh, engineering team there to uh, like make sure that that kind of came together well. Any other stuff that we should talk about? I don't think so. Um, so, so Thanksgiving tournament plans for you guys? Sounds like possible tournament tomorrow at noon. Yep. And then there's, there is a like relatively bigger event on Saturday. I may or may not play. I haven't decided yet, but I think it has like $500 in prizing, which is kind of cool. How about you, Britt? Any tournaments you're, you're locked in on this weekend? No, maybe, maybe that one tomorrow. I, I'm, since I'll be going, I'm going to see my family just going to my parents for the holidays and I could play tournaments. Like I bring my laptop with me, but I usually don't mess with it, which will mean I'll miss the Sunday open, unfortunately, but maybe the Friday Hexters or something I could figure something for. But now that I'm essentially on my break, I'll be able to play the Monday Hexters pretty consistently again, which should be nice. Try to do that in addition to the, um, Sunday open. I am, however, I, I sort of, I don't think I've ever mentioned it on the podcast, but part of my interest in the game, at least when the physical game comes back, is I was sort of, I've sort of thought about judging and I, I went through, did all that. I'm like the lowest level professor currently, but Christopher Schmansky has a little talk seminar thing going on this weekend, I believe on slow play that I'm going to try to attend if I can make it. I think he's doing it multiple times. So the European judges and Australian judges, I suppose, can catch them too. But I'm kind of kind of excited about that. Hopefully it'll be interesting and may entice me a little more to get involved on the other side of things. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, obviously it's amazing the how I think everybody's excited to have Chris judge them because they feel like they have a really good judge. I, I remember, I you know, it's funny, I actually saw a picture pop up on my Facebook timeline the other day. There was a like league cup we drove to in Richmond. It was like such a pain for us to drive to, but we drove there because it was Russell Lapar's first judging <laughs> tournament. And we have a picture of him like standing over uh, Liam and Walker because Walker was like, oh, I'll go to if Russell's judging. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, who could ask for a more curmudgeonly grandfatherly judge than Russell Lapar? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, uh, yeah, hey, people People love uh, good judges, right? Like, you know, everybody wants uh, to know that they have great judges uh, judging their tournament. That's true. I do, it's a thought that's crossed my mind as well. And I do wonder if as kind of like our generation, our age of players gets older, if we may see that start happening more frequently, if people like transitioning to judging and helping organize stuff. And I and nothing against like the the judges and TOs that have been doing great work over the last you know twenty years, but I do think it would be really interesting to have like long term players end up as judges because you bring a very different perspective, uh, I think, to everything. So that could be really cool. 
you know, I think what, one of the interesting things is, like, I think Russell went in kind of like Chris. He was very confident telling someone, dude, you're slow playing, play faster. Mm-hmm. Right. He's like, I know what that looks like. I know what you're doing. Right. <laughs> Whereas I think somebody who's never been a player, you know, you, you might not have that confidence. What you're doing is not like thinking about your next play. What you're doing is waiting to play. (laughs) And Russell was happy to chase people to make plays. And in that respect, it's good for the game, right? Mm -hmm. It's really good for the game. It's interesting. You know, as long as we're talking about this, I I saw Chris posting about how he was doing that seminar. And I would love it if they like recorded that Zoom and let anybody watch it. Because I think anybody at some level, like you don't have to be a judge to get value out of that. You can probably be a player and get value out of that. And like the better players understand the rules, like theoretically... That's a noble thing. But but one of the things that made me wonder about was, I mean, there, being a judge at some level is kind of a pretty good gig. And that like, there's no prep work involved. You just kind of show up. There's obviously like, there's prep work. You have to do stuff the night before. You have to do stuff to help them get open. But you show up and the payout is a pretty consistent payout. Like mm-hmm. you, have a, you have a deterministic, the NPV is uh, higher because there's, there's no beta, right? Mm-hmm. Am I speaking your language, Mike? I'm trying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand what you're saying. I wonder how much economically, if the proper economic outcome is everybody should be a judge and nobody should play. (laughs) (laughs) Could be. It's it's a little weird that it seems like judging pays kind of okay. Yeah, it's just, it's like, for me, it's like, it's not competitive, right? It's not like, not actually playing the game. And you do have to, so there is prep work in the sense that you do need to understand the game and the interactions and everything. So you do have to play it at some level. You can't just not play for, you know, six months and expect to come back and know all the interactions and rules. That's why even commentating, I feel like it's good to, like it's important to be kind of up on the game. There's people that are, I mean, like Cora came in at some events and didn't know anything, but she was great still. But I think if you're not like just a super naturally great commentator, you still got to know what's going on. Interesting. All right, guys. Let's wrap it up. We got there. Another pod in the books. Good stuff. Have a Thanksgiving. Have a good Thanksgiving, all you listeners. All right. My dog's asking for dinner. I'll see yeah, you guys. It's time. It's time. All right, guys. A great one. Way to jam it in before the holidays. Uh, yeah. I'll see you guys on the other side. Be safe. Take care. Yeah, right. Bye, guys.